You know, I always cook for the parties and everything I make is vegan, obviously, but my husband uh, was not a vegan. He was a vegetarian. And he's like, you know, my guests, you know, guests want real cheese. So he went out and bought all his cheese and I was really pissed off. So he puts all his cheese out there and I had been playing around with some of my cheese. And so I put a couple of my cheeses out there and someone came up to me and said, wow, that lemon peppercorn cheese is amazing. What creamery did you get it from? I was like... Yeah. Okay. Welcome back to the Well Now It podcast. I'm your host, Savannah. A decision to become vegetarian at the age of 12 paved my next guest's career path. Growing up in Tokyo, Miyoko Shinner loved the flavorful gourmet cheeses, but found herself conflicted as she had such a strong compassion for animals. She eventually went vegan and set out to create one of the biggest plant-based cheese brands of all time. Miyoku first found success in 2012 with the release of her groundbreaking book, which kicked off the start of the vegan cheese revolution. From there, she set out to create it for others. Today, Miyoku's Creamery offers all types of dairy-free cheese, including versions of cream cheese, mozzarella, and the number one product, butter. Her products can be found in more than 12,000 stores throughout the US. Today, we talk about her cultural upbringing in Japan and the difficult transition to the United States, becoming vegan and writing her own cookbooks, launching another business in her 50s, setting expectations as a leader, and the future of the Generation Z um, leaders and their influence on society. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'm here with the lovely Miyoku Shinner. Miyoku is an award-winning vegan celebrity chef behind Miyoku's Creamery. Her passion for her craft and mission is really inspiring. And the publication of her groundbreaking book of artisan vegan cheese definitely kicked off the start of the vegan cheese revolution and has been called the holy grail of the culinary world. And I absolutely love her products. And as someone who doesn't consume dairy, it's it's been a lifesaver. So I'm really excited to speak with her today because Miyoku's cheese has really changed the perception of what plant-based cheese can be. And so before we get started on how you started Miyoku's Kitchen um, Creamery, I know you grew up in a small village in Japan. So do you mind telling me a little bit about your childhood there? And do you think it inspired um, Miyoku's Creamery today? Sure. Well, I grew up eating rice. So uh, and I was I did I was raised um, I spent the first few years of my life in a small Japanese uh, village. But, you know, I we later migrated to the United States where I lived for a while. And then I went back to Japan. But the first few years of my life, I never had any cheese. I didn't have milk because that's not a, that was not a part of the average Japanese diet uh, back in the 50s and 60s. Um, today, America, uh, Japanese do eat cheese and they do eat milk, certainly not to the degree Americans do. But when I was growing up, I remember the first time I had ice cream and my mother got me all dressed up and we got in a taxi and we went to some, I don't know, some fancy restaurant in Yokohama. And um, we sat down and I still remember to this day, this perfectly clean table sitting across my mom and the waiter bringing out two little glass bowls of vanilla ice cream, one scoop each. And I tasted the vanilla ice cream and I thought it was the most magical experience of my life. I thought, oh my God, what is this? What is this magic food? I thought it was so incredible. And then when I moved to the United States, you know, I got hooked on dairy and cheese and all of that. Um, so I don't think Japan really got me uh, at the time got me started on on starting Yoko's. What happened was when I went back to Japan, 
after college, that's when I turned into a vegan. And by then I was a major, major cheese addict. And I was like, how am I ever going to satisfy my appetite for cheese? And so I just started playing around with ways to kind of, you know, put together a cheese board, Mm -hmm. starting out by marinating tofu. That was my first attempt was, um, was marinating tofu in miso, which was an idea that I got from a television show about these nuns that were burying tofu and lots of different things and treating it. I noticed that the the texture changed and became more buttery and spreadable and cheese-like. And anyway, it just sort of started this journey of 30 years of experimentation. Yeah, that's that's incredible. And when you came to the States, what did you notice the most of like the shifting changes of like the culture from Japan? And um, especially in the States, there's just an abundance of like processed food. So there's that big cultural difference. So what did you notice the most when you came? Oh, my God. Well, first of all, this was in um, the mid-1960s. And so it, back then, there was less processed food than there is today. But I remember, um, you know, in Japan, you don't snack, really. You eat three meals a day, and it's mainly rice and miso soup and vegetables and maybe fish or whatever it was. But, but it was they were all real foods. They, we had no processed food in Japan, um, maybe a rice cracker. But that was about it. Like that was the only processed food there was. And I remember going down to the the corner store because that's what we had in our little town in California. And my mother buying these pixie sticks, which was like a straw filled with like sugary, you know, some <laughs> substance. And I thought that was magical. And I remember she went overboard. She discovered all these candies and junk food and hostess treats. And she started just like she thought being buying all that stuff for me was being a good mother. And so So I went from eating, you know, rice balls for lunch to having a hostess Twinkie in my lunchbox (laughs) every single day. Um, And then we discovered McDonald's. And I thought that was like the greatest thing on earth. (laughs) So definitely um, everything changed. You know, we went from eating a healthy whole foods uh, Japanese diet that was largely vegetarian because we didn't eat meat in Japan. We ate some fish, but there was a lot of tofu and vegetables and stuff like that to all of a sudden eating meat, you know, three meals a day um, until I was 12 years old and decided I was a vegetarian. So yeah, it was yeah, yeah, yeah. really only like a, a six, five, six year period of my life when I ate meat. Right. Yeah. No, that's, that can be difficult. And coming to the state, did you ever also experience kind of like imposter syndrome? Just like kind of feeling lost between both cultures because I'm bicultural, I'm half Chinese, so and half French. So I know those are completely different cultures. So coming in, was that kind of like a shock to your system or oh it was awful. That? It was awful. I mean, so mm-hmm. in the mid 1960s, it sounds strange, but but it wasn't that far off from the end of World War II and the occupation. And so parents of my of my of school children um, would say things like you bomb Pearl Harbor. I mean, th- like the parents would say, you know, racist things to me. Wow. Um, and uh, the kids would learn from them. So I got a lot of there was a lot of racism and it was a, a lily white community. Mm-hmm. So I was an oddity. I didn't speak any English when I first arrived. Um, and so that, you know, and then I ate weird food like, you know, onigiri, rice balls and things mm-hmm. like that. So. Um, yeah, I got kids made fun of me. Um, parents were racist. Um, it was very, you know, all I wanted to do was hide. I just wanted to go and hide mm-hmm. and somehow magically awaken the next day with blonde hair. Like literally, I remember getting a blonde wig one time um, for, I don't know, for Halloween or something. And I would just like put it on and look at myself in the mirror and 
<laughs> and of course I looked weird because yeah. I still look Japanese and but I I mean I literally just like wanted to like wake up and find myself white yeah I can understand I can understand yeah. that <laughs> and um so did you ever feel like you were you were wanting to be an entrepreneur so just pivoting a little bit to your career um did you have that urge to start your own business or like what did you study in university if you did okay go? I studied philosophy okay college. However, I realize now looking back on my life, I've always been an entrepreneur. Um, my So my parents were both entrepreneurs. My mother had her own business in Japan. And then my parents started a business in the United States. And then um, when I was about uh, nine years old, they gave me this little printer thing. Back then, you know, you had carbon paper, but they gave me this little carbon paper, like an ink, like a giant ink pad. And I could type something up, and then I could print a newspaper. So I started the Oakdale Times, which was the newspaper for the street that I lived on. And I went door to door and I sold it. And so I was co- constantly coming up with businesses that um, that I would start. And that's how I would earn my money. Um, so I don't think I ever thought about the fact that I was a born entrepreneur. But um, as soon as I got out of college and became a vegan, I started my first business and I've just been starting businesses ever since. Um, I think I just, it just, you know, I got it from watching my parents and mm-hmm. don't have a business degree. No, yeah, that, no, that's great. Like not everyone needs to get a business degree to be a successful entrepreneur. And I love that. And did you, did you attend culinary school or any, anything of that sort? Or where did you get kind of your cooking experience? Sure. When I became a vegetarian at the age of 12, my mother announced that she wasn't going to cook for me anymore. Oh, okay. So I went to the school of hard knocks where I had to learn how to cook just so (laughs) I could eat. Um, And then I dove right into reading cookbooks. Um, I read every cookbook I could get my hands on going through high school. Um, And back then people didn't really cook a whole lot. You know, like cooking was not people, the, the word foodie didn't exist. People weren't foodies, but I became a foodie at a very young age and I was fascinated with food. And I actually, after going to college, I really did want to go to culinary school, but being a vegetarian, I realized that I would have to work with meat and fish and I didn't want to do that. So I just decided I would continue pursuing, you know, being a self-taught chef. Right. Yeah. And in 19, in the nineties, you published your first vegan cookbook. And so I'm, I'm assuming in the nineties being vegan wasn't popular back then. So did you receive any backlash on that or what did people say when it first came out? Um, when the book, you mean? Yes, the book, yeah. Um, no, I didn't get any backlash. I mean, mm-hmm. back then, this was pre-internet. You know, it really, it was very hard to like promote anything. So, um, I'm just lucky that I even sold more than a couple of copies <laughs> that way. Um, so I, I really wanted to prove to the world that um, fine dining vegan cuisine was possible, and, and that was the purpose of writing this cookbook. Because there were a handful of vegan cookbooks uh, in the '80s, but they were all just sort of you know run of the mill your average lentil loaf and, you know, what to do with tofu and stuff like that. There was really no imagination. And the idea of creating haute cuisine just hadn't occurred to anybody. And and that was my goal was like, look, you can make a gateau de crepe. You know, you can make um, bourguignon. Um, and that was my goal. Yeah. And fast forward a couple more years in 2012, you released the Artisan Vegan um, Cheese Cookbook. So yes. why cheese in particular? Did you notice a gap in the market or was it more personally for you that you just really craved um, like vegan cheese? Both. It was both. I mean, uh, there were a f- couple of vegan cheeses in the marketplace at the time. Um, I think Dea had just launched maybe a couple a couple years prior to that, maybe in the late 2000s. Um, 
But the earliest, the first vegan cheese in the marketplace was in the 19, early 1990s, I believe. It was called Vegan Rella. And I was so excited to find it. And I took it home and I took a bite of it and I practically threw up. It was like <laughs> God awful. And so by the early 2000s, vegan cheese, of which, you know, there were only like maybe two, uh, just slices, had just gotten an awful, awful. It was a joke. It was like, why would you, you know, no one even knew it existed. And those who did hated it. So it's like, I have no idea how this stuff sold. It was bad. Um, And then I think Dea came along and that was like, oh, that's pretty good. But it was still just oil and starch. It wasn't real cheese. Yeah. And I'm a, I like real food. I want to take something like, you know, like dairy milk is transformed into thousands of different kinds of cheese. It starts out as just one type of milk. And yet through inoculation with different bacterial cultures and processes, you can make thousands of different varieties of cheese. That concept really fascinated me. And so I have been pursuing um, that technology for years, trying to figure out how can I turn soy milk? It was first soy milk. How can I turn soy milk into cheese? Right. And then I coagulate it and turn it into tofu instead of cheese. And um, so then I made yogurt. Um, And the fact there's some early videos of me from maybe 20 years ago on YouTube um, where I made cheese out of yogurt. And so it was kind of like this constant experimenting. Um, And it was the holy grail. It was like, you know, if we're going to change how America eats, we got to solve the cheese problem. For sure. Yeah. And what was the like initial product like? Like what was the moment that you realized that you were, you're probably mixing the ingredients and you taste it and you're like, this is it. Like I could market this. Yeah, the first time was it was at a party. We we were hosting a Christmas party, and um, you know I always cook for the parties and everything I make is vegan, obviously. But my husband uh, was not a vegan; he was a vegetarian, and he's like, you know, my guests, you know, guests want real cheese. So he went out and bought all his cheese, and I was really pissed off. So he puts all his cheese out there, and I had been playing around with some of my cheese, and so I put a couple of my cheeses out there, and someone came up to me and said, "Wow." That lemon peppercorn cheese is amazing. What creamery did you get it from? I was like, yeah, okay, that was <laughs> So I was like, I knew I was, you know, this is if some common omnivore thinks that my cheese is the best of a thick, then I knew I was onto something. So, no, yeah, that, that's um, incredible. Yeah. yeah. And when you first started the company, it was quite successful. It's still very successful. And did you get any outside investing or was this kind of all of your all of your own savings? No, actually, I, I got investors from the get go. Um, oh, wow. Small seed round. Um, I mean, it probably is, you know, it's small by by it's a it's a it was a large amount, I guess, for some people, but small by by uh, my consideration. Um you know, I was just really surprised how quickly the money came together. Um, I just started saying, um, I want to start this cheese company. And people were like, here, I'll write you a check. It was very, very oh, wow. strange how that first round came about. Yeah. Do you think it was because of the success of your cookbook? Do you think that that helped? Oh, definitely. And mm-hmm. the fact that after I wrote the cookbook, I mean, I was not planning to ever start a business again. Um, you know, I was already in my 50s. I felt like, you know, I don't want to do this. I'm not very good at it, blah, blah, blah. Um, but um, I had been, I, wa- I really wanted people to start cooking at home. I really wanted people to learn how to make cheese in the in their home. You know, I was trying to empower them to do that. And then I just kept running into people who were like, I don't want to make cheese. I just want to buy it. So can you please just make it? You know, I'd rather <laughs> spend the money than take the time. And so I knew there was a real need. Um, and um, 
I just figured, hey, you know, this is, I got to give it one last chance. Um, what's the purpose of my life if I don't give it one last opportunity to mm-hmm. do something? So the book really, really helped. But I was also giving out tons and tons of cheese. I was making tons of cheese at home and taking it to every fundraiser, every organ, every event. And so lots of people were already tasting it. And I think that's how the money came together fast. Yeah, right. And so you started with a small team and now it's over 100 employees. And how did you how did you scale your business while um, still keeping as well like that? tight-knit like culture at your company? Well, I can't say that the tight-knit culture was maintained the entire time. Um, mm-hmm. it, you know, initially it, it felt like this is a great culture. I know what I'm doing. And then we got to about 40 people. And that's a, that's when I looked around and I thought, oh my God, what the hell happened here? Who are these people? Why don't they understand that we're fighting for animals? Well, you know, they don't seem to care. And uh, what does this all mean? Um, and then I realized it was, you know, I wasn't a very good leader. So I really had to dive deep into how do I develop myself as a leader? It's not just about the product. You have to create a company, which means a team of people that work together. And how do you how do you become the leader that can motivate and inspire people? So um, I had to really, really work on my leadership skills. Um, and I'm continually doing that even today. Now, we have about 160 employees now. We have more we're hiring. And even today, I realize occasionally that I didn't manage um, expectations properly in a certain department or something. And right. next thing you know, you know, people, the bigger you get, people in departments start going off and doing their own thing. And so you have to provide that leadership. It's a learning, uh, it's it's a learning experience. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. Coming up with a great product is easy compared to being a good leader. Yeah, and are you still very hands-on today or what is your role now with um, Miyoko's Creamery? So that has evolved. Um, It had gotten to a point, I think, pre-COVID where I was becoming more, not a figurehead, but I was, I had, you know, department heads to run various departments. And and so... um, I wasn't in the weeds as much. Um, Post-COVID, I've gotten back in the weeds. We had to make some departmental changes. We realized that, especially with the stress that COVID adds, that some of the people weren't growing with the company or didn't really embrace the vision of the company. And so we had to do some reorganization. And so I am back involved with research and development and marketing much more so than I have no, that's great. Yeah. And um, and your customer base, I assume most of your customers aren't vegan, right? A large, I would say about half are and then half are yeah. not. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. And so where do you, where do you see the company, I guess, growing in yeah. the next five years, ex- expanding the products, I assume, or what are some other details you'd want to share? Yeah, absolutely. Um, expanding the product range for sure. But it's really sort of crossing the chasm over to the so-called flexitarians and a lot of Gen Zers. I mean, we're finding that the t- you know we're an activist company, and our activist measure, our activist me- messages really gener- uh, resonate with Gen Zers. Mm-hmm. So a lot of companies are you know they're targeting uh, millennials because they're a little older and they have the pocketbooks. But I really feel that it's the Gen Zers that are going to change the world and create a just food system. Mm-hmm. And so you know we want to talk to them. Um, are you a Gen Zer? Um, I'm 23. I don't, I think I'm, I don't, I'm not sure. I think, I think I'm in between. I think you're in between. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a 97. So I must be in between. Yeah. You're somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm not sure either. Cause I have a 24 year old and she's a millennial. So I'm not sure. 
Okay. Yeah. I might be on the cusp then of, of both, you know? Yeah. That, that's great. And so when you're hiring on your team, obviously it varies for the role, but what are some of like the skills that you look for when you want to bring someone onto your team? Well, obviously they have to have the skill set for the role. So, you know, if it's in marketing, they obviously have to have experience. And if it's finance, same thing. But in addition to that, we look for people that are at least open-minded um, to the concepts that we're going to be talking about here at this company, because we talk about them um, all the time. Um, we have twice a week Zoom calls with all of our employees where we talk about everything from, you know, we talk about animal rights. We talk about environmental degradation. We talk about all these, we talk about food injustice. We talk about all these topics. We watch movies and then we have discussions. Oh, so people great. get homework, like you have to watch What the Hell. That's the next movie we're watching. Mm-hmm. But we just watched 13th, which is about the 13th Amendment and talked about, you know, how slavery continues even in the prison system. So, you know, we're, we're, we really are an Epicurean activist company um, that is taking on um, just all these social justice issues uh, that are tied to food. No, yeah, uh, no, that's great. And we want everyone to become aware of it. And we think that if you're an employee here and you care about these issues, you're going to become more motivated to work. And the people that don't care don't last long because they probably get sick of me talking about these issues all the time. <laughs> no, yeah. And I also want to say congratulations on your victory. And for people that Thank don't you. know, um, the word butter has now been deemed um, to merit the First Amendment protection in California. So yes. and you can also use the terms cruelty-free and lactose-free. So do you mind touching upon a little bit of the journey of like a little bit of the struggles there with um, some of the legal issues um, sure. that you had to face? Yeah, sure. Last uh, December, we got a letter from the California Department of Food and Agriculture saying that uh, we had to discontinue. We couldn't say the word butter because it wasn't made out of uh, cow's milk. Uh, We also couldn't say cruelty-free, lactose-free, revolutionizing dairy with plants, hormone-free. And worst of all, they said we couldn't show any images of animals on our website. We had a picture. We have pictures of cows on our website of people hugging cows because we want people to see cows not as magical milking machines, but as loving living beings that, you know, that should be, that are huggable, Um, you know, like your dog. (laughs) And so we're trying to change people's perceptions. And that basically California told us that images of animals belong to the animal, to livestock industry. And we just thought that was ridiculous. So we filed the First Amendment violation lawsuit uh, with uh, the Animal Legal Defense Fund as our counsel. Um, and uh, we just won um, basically the right to use the word butter in our motion for preliminary injunction, and we can also say cruelty-free, and we can say lactose That's amazing. Yeah. So we think that's a huge win. It sets a precedent for the entire industry. No, yeah, that's that's so incredible. I'm so happy to hear that, and um, what are some of the challenges that you face today um, with your company and as a leader? Sure. I mean, the, the leadership issues continue. You know, how... As we get bigger and bigger and bigger, um, we're going to reach about 200 by first uh, quarter of 2021, 2021. Uh, I don't know what year it is at times. It, it, it's going to become harder and harder to maintain the culture. And so we're really, really working on that and developing the culture internally so that every employee here becomes an ambassador for the company when they go out. Um, so, you know, continually working on that is a huge challenge. And then scaling is a huge challenge. Um, initially, we were making everything in-house. And of course, you know, that's being tested to the max because 
um, we're nearing, we're not near capacity yet, but we will be next year. And so we're now utilizing co-packers, uh, which means other you know, private label people that will make pro- products for us. And um, that's been a challenge, finding the right co-packers, making sure the quality control is up to snuff, um, making sure that, you know, we're getting it for the right price point. I mean, this has just added a whole layer to the operational part of our business that's been really, really challenging. So um, this is the first year we've ever ever utilized co-packers and we're just, you know, kind of learning a lot about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's great. And just a last question. I'm, I'm curious to know, what is your day-to-day like um, as a successful female CEO? Well, I am on Zoom calls a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of meetings, um, you know, and, and that's, uh, yeah, there's a lot of meetings about everything from marketing to sales to operations, um, you know, where I need to, to be, uh, to have some sort of touch point. Um, I'm now back and doing a little bit of research and development. Um, and so, you know, I'm on the bench a little bit, not very much, but about once a week, I am, I am on the bench. Um, of course, a lot of the, the networking podcasts and sort of community outreach, that sort of thing, I still, uh, do but since covid you know we implemented this thing called miyoko's home comforts which is a facebook live um, stream that we did every single day for nine weeks it's a cooking show that i do where i don't just cook but we talk about all these issues covid social justice uh black lives matter we you know we cover all those topics right now we're finally just down to two days a week but we really feel this is important in this new reality where people are disconnected people are isolated people are in their homes we're not a company that's just about sell, sell, sell. We're really about providing solutions for for living better. Um, and in order to do that, you know, we want to connect with people. We want to connect with consumers. We want to hear what what people are saying and what they're thinking about. So this is a very important initiative, and I head that up. And so that takes up a lot of my time too. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. Um, I love your brand, Miyoku. Mayoku's Creamery. Um, the products are amazing and I love what your company stands for. Um, not just veganism, but like social justice issues that you brought up. So I really appreciate um, you spending the time and talking about your story. And it's been incredible to hear it. Great. Well, thank you so much, Savannah. Enjoy talking to you. This episode is sponsored by ARC, and ARC is a Vancouver-based self-care brand and wellness blog started by two women of color who are passionate about sharing a holistic approach to self-care. They offer a variety of products ranging from essential oils, journal cards, candles, and bath bombs. ARC hopes that by exploring their products, you're able to create a self-care routine that is customized and works for you. Check them out at findyourarc.ca and follow them on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest at findyourarc. And that was Miyoku Shinner. Thanks so much for listening and definitely try out the products if you haven't already. Um, Trust me, I'm not vegan and they're very good. So if you're from Canada, you can find them at Whole Foods and in the US as well. Um, All the natural grocery stores and Whole Foods. So see you next week and make sure to check out the Instagram page, Well Now What Podcast, um, for all the upcoming episodes.